Psalm 136, and reading from the very first verse, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. And our title is, Things God Gives Only to those who ask. And the title will become significant as we look at this psalm. It's a psalm of praise, sung especially in ancient times among the Jews on the three pilgrim feasts. It is thought to be, but not necessarily, an antiphonal psalm where the people sang one part, one line in each verse, and the Levites sang the second part, or the other way round. But that's supposition. It's very likely, though, it, it, it seems to be the case, every verse ends, for his mercy endureth forever. And there's a reason for this constant repetition. The psalm seems to be a psalm which gives, thank, gives thanks for creation and for the deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt and then for various deliverances as they went through the wilderness journeys and then general gratitude and each thing is mentioned in turn in a block of verses, but verse by verse, constantly, 26 times, oh, give thanks unto the, to the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. That's the psalm. Now, looking at it, you'd think it was all about the national fortunes of Israel, her deliverance from bondage from slavery in Egypt, her various deliverances from enemies who contested her as she proceeded to the wilderness and from the wilderness and so on. You'd think it was all about the thriving of a nation on earth. But as with all these psalms, there is a greater purpose because the... Uh, idea of deliverance and blessing and provision from God extends to spiritual things. Now it's obvious in this psalm that this is so. Look, for instance, at verse 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. An observation, a conclusion. To him, verse 4, who alone doeth great wonders. And then the conclusion, his mercy endureth forever. Verse 5, to him that by wisdom made the heavens. The conclusion, his mercy endureth forever. You see, there's an observation and a conclusion in every verse. And the conclusion in each verse is about eternal mercy. And the Mercy that is in mind is the acceptance of God. The word mercy in the Old Testament translates 
a Hebrew verb which comes from to bow the head. And the idea is that some important person or ruler and king is bowing the head to acknowledge someone who's appearing before him, to bestow a favor upon them, inclining the head to recognize and accept them. And it's translated, quite rightly, mercy, the mercy of the Lord. But behind it is the idea of the acceptance by the Lord. Oh, to be accepted by the Lord. His acceptance, his acknowledgement of you, and his favor towards you lasts forever. That's really the subject. That's a spiritual matter. This is something eternal. This is not only about your body and your life now, it's about your soul. For his acceptance is everlasting to you. And so the fact that this appears in every verse reminds us that though the benefits described are earthly, the benefits of creation, the benefits of the sun and the stars, the benefits of deliverance from bondage in Israel and all that kind of thing, they actually stand for and encompass all benefits from God. For his acceptance and mercy and kindness is everlasting. That's the idea. So you have to understand the Psalms when they're speaking of God's blessings in terms of say, agricultural blessings, as some psalms do, the blessing upon the crops and all the rest of it, that's an example of the goodness of God and the provision of God. But the psalm ultimately is talking about all God's benefits. just, Just turn back for a moment, if you like, to Psalm 23. Some psalms actually indicate this as they go, though Psalm 136 doesn't. But look at Psalm 23 as an example of many that do. The Lord is my shepherd. We're talking about shepherds. I shall not want. You'd think it could be about material help and benefits in the body. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. All the examples are so far earthly. But then you get to verse 3. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. And in this case, the psalm lets you into the breadth of the psalm and its application straight away. It's talking not only about material benefits and helps. It's talking about the soul and righteousness, and a walk with God. So you bear that in mind. All the psalms are like that. When we find a psalm that's thanking God for creation and the deliverances of ancient Israel from bondage, provisions, defending them, helping them, settling them in their land and blessing them, those are tremendous examples of powerful acts of God But we're really talking about all his work. Blessing the soul. Blessing us spiritually. Giving us pardon and forgiveness. 
a new life and a place in heaven. And that you have to understand as we look at the psalm. So just look at Psalm 136 and we'll note some of the, the observations and conclusions. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Lord is in capital letters. That means that the original has the divine name, or at least the initials of the divine name. Jehovah, the Lord. What's the significance of that? Well, when you see Lord in capital letters, it's the divine initials which mean the self-existent God. The God who is the source of everything, source of all life, all energy, all substance and material things, the source of everything. It means he is the I am, the only self-existent being that exists, and he fills all in all. He needs no food, he needs no energy to be fed to him from the outside, he needs no instructions, he needs no ideas, in no shape or form does he need any support, assistance, maintenance or help. He is the only true, all-powerful, self-existent being in the universe, the source of everything. And, of course, the authority and the Lord, the one who governs all things. Do we have a worthy concept of God? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, the supreme, self-existent God, for he is good. He is morally good. He is perfect. Everything he says and that he publishes in his word, this revelation of God's will, the scriptures, everything is true and perfect. All his promises are perfect. Everything he says is pure. He is good. I was reading not so very long ago a set of biographies of great generals in British uh, armed services. And uh, one of these men, who was perhaps among the greatest of them all, and I won't mention any names, is celebrated in this collection of biographies for his uh, grasp of strategy and his great skill and ingenuity, his brilliance, his near genius as a general. And the plans that he made, one of the only uh, architects of uh, battles who was always successful and never failed, remarkable skill at warfare. I'm not glorifying that. I'm giving this as an example. But, and here's the great but, as a man, the biographer had to tell us, he was pretty hopeless. He was quite shallow, personally. He had no conversation. His family passed through various tragedies. He had nothing to say to them. There was no depth in his being he could draw on for life and living, for explanations, for consolation, for help. As a person, you wouldn't have rated him at all. 
He had one area of genius. Why am I talking about this? Well, we're thinking of God. He is good, entirely good. He is depths untold. He is divine genius. He is altogether wise and perfect. He knows everything, and he made everything, from the tiniest particles to the vastest things. God is thoroughly good and profound and wonderful. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. He's good in his actions. He's eternally good. For his mercy endureth forever. Are you, friend, very taken up by the things of this life? The following of certain personalities, perhaps politicians, perhaps in some field of life or accomplishment, filled with admiration. Wonderful world this is, wonderful people, Wonderful leaders, wonderful figureheads. Oh, no. Of course, we give every credit where it's due, and we're glad to have people with powerful abilities in different fields, and it benefits us all in many ways. But we don't worship anyone on earth. We're all fallible human beings with various weaknesses and failings. And if you had access to that family circle, you'd soon note them and see them, and the stumblings and the problems. Only God is good, and entirely good, and wonderful, and profound. For his mercy endureth forever. Oh, verse 2, give thanks unto the God of gods, Whatever does that mean? Oh, the gods that are worshipped in some communities and some nations, the gods that are worshipped, how foolish! The very substance from which they are fashioned, whether it's gold or silver or some other precious material, they're all created by the one true and living God. They're his handiwork, They're made by him. So what's the good of those gods? They're only occupying stolen territory, as it were. God, the living God, made everything. Take a bit of gold or a bit of silver, fashion it into an idol and worship it. How ridiculous. The very substance they're made of belongs to God, the one true God. That's the idea is to show the nothingness, the worthlessness of those gods, the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, prime ministers, emperors, whatever. Think of them all. They're all transient. They're here today and gone tomorrow. They'll be forgotten. They achieve some things. They fail in many more things. They're limited. They're fallible. They cannot keep all their promises. Why, you have it in Psalm 146, and we could read a 
few verses from that uh, great psalm. And, uh, well, I won't go through those things that will take too long, but I will give thanks to the Lord of Lords for his mercy endureth forever. They're all accountable to him. Verse 4, to him who alone doeth great wonders. And the examples that follow are going to be examples in the life of ancient Israel. The parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the River Jordan, the miraculous deliverances that they had. He that doeth great wonders. But then you think of conversion. Conversion to Christ. What a great wonder. A man who is a bully. A man who is ferocious, ill-tempered, through and through. But if he's converted to Christ, he's changed. And he becomes sensitive. And he acquires gentleness and understanding and consideration. And he's an entirely different person. Some aspects of the old nature still may rampage around within him, but he can suppress them and conquer them now. He's a changed man. That's a wonder. That's a miracle. Somebody who is a hapless liar can never tell the truth. Sometimes regrets it. If I could give this up, if lies didn't come out of my mouth so easily, Yes, but if he's converted, he's changed altogether. person who thinks only of himself or herself, a selfish person, a self-loving person, a deeply proud person, conceited person, converted, a new humility comes in. So the psalm is thinking of the great wonders that occurred in the life of ancient Israel but they're just illustrations and examples of the great wonders that God can do for anyone who comes to him and seeks him and yields to him, who alone doeth great wonders. The things that God exclusively does when he creates, we won't think of the creation of the world, or the animal kingdom, or the plants. We think of the creation of man. Men and women, look at us, friends, with our power of reason, our minds, our consciousness, our capability of appreciation and love, our capability of communication with each other, These are wonderful things. Our capability of vision and seeing and appreciating what we see. God alone creates and does great wonders, marvelous things. Yet we don't thank him unless we're converted to Christ, unless we come to him. We don't thank him. We think... almost seem to think we made our own powers and abilities and propensities and gifts. We don't praise him. We don't want to study him. 
We don't want to obey him. Sometimes we don't want to hear about him even. And yet he's the God who alone doeth great wonders for his mercy, his readiness to accept, lasts forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, the skies. Because we're city dwellers. Some of you have lived outside cities and you appreciate the night skies. And at times you've been out in the night skies and just perhaps by yourself been overwhelmed by the vastness on a clear night of the stars and the skies. Something very special about that. It's very humbling. Gives you perspective. You feel your smallness. You feel somehow the shortness of life. Now you're ready to think about the mighty and the everlasting God, the greatness of God. That's what the psalmist refers to here. To him that by wisdom made the heavens. Just think about it. Get perspective. How small we are. How much we need him, our creator. If he comes into our lives, if we come to Christ, if we have forgiveness of all our sin, if we have a new nature and a new life, and we walk with him and know him. Why, that's tremendous. We understand the purpose of life now. We know where we're going. We're walking with him. We appeal to him for help and for blessing and for guidance. What a difference it makes to life. Verse 6, to him that stretched out the earth above the waters, Why does the psalmist mention that? Well, this world and this earth was formed, really, with mankind in mind. When you read the first chapters of the book of Genesis and you read about creation, if there's one thing you learn, it's this, that everything that was done was done with the creation of man in mind. Now, uh, modern biology draws the wrong conclusions. It observes many accurate facts, and then it reasons along these lines. It says, first, there is the cosmos, then the earth, and it cools down and it's formed, and everything, this is the theory of evolution and so on, and everything is formed very, very gradually, and the accidental end product is man. But the Bible goes the other way entirely. God created all things. What for? For man. He formed the earth and he made everything for the occupation of mankind so that people would seek him and love him and serve him and know him. But mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and alienation from him. However, his mercy, his readiness to accept, is forever. 
to use the saying, his door is always open to returning sinners who seek him and they will find him. Christ has come to make that possible. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters for his mercy, his readiness to accept and forgive and show kindness endureth forever. To him that made great lights and the sun is going to be mentioned and the moon by night, the great lights, but they're only examples There's an even greater light than that. The light of the word of God. The light of God's book. That's the greatest light of all. Which tells us why we're here. How we came to be here. What God's plans are for us. Our need of him. What will happen to us if lifelong we ignore him and turn away from him. It tells us about the justice of God. It tells us about the kindness of God and his readiness to forgive and save and how Christ came into the world in order to go to Calvary's cross. There is something here that you really do have to understand, friends. God cannot just forgive sin. Oh, I hope everybody grasps this. God is holy and perfect. He is light, such blazing light. Sin comes into his presence and guilt, it is destroyed and burned up. And sin must be destroyed out of God's moral universe. In the end, finally, all sin must be destroyed by punishment. So how will God forgive if his holiness demands the punishment of sin? How will he forgive? And the answer is, only by coming and taking the punishment himself. That's what Christ the Lord did. He came into this world, born as a babe, grew up, lived a perfect life, demonstrating that he was truly the divine Son of God, qualifying to be our Saviour, and eventually went to Calvary's cross where God the Father poured out upon him all the punishment due to those people who would be forgiven. Those people who in the course of time would be moved to seek him and to find him and to lay down their lives to him and ask for his forgiveness and his converting power For all those, he suffered the eternal punishment of sin, compressed into a matter of hours, the most terrible event that you could possibly describe, and we cannot even begin to imagine it. That's the price Christ paid to secure our forgiveness, 
to have the right to pardon and change us and draw us to himself. Ultimately, that's what this psalm will be talking about. I pass over some of the verses and come almost to the very end of the psalm. Verse 23, who remembered us in our low estate for his mercy endureth forever. Remembered us, the Hebrew word is who marked us, who took note of us in our desperately lower state. That refers primarily to the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. God noted them and marked them and felt sorry for them. So he delivered them. It applies to us too. He saw you in your low estate, living really just like a human animal. Not praying, no communication with God, no help from on high, not owned by God, not obeying him, no love for him, no worship for him, no seeking after him. Lost, a lost soul, heading for judgment and condemnation. He saw us, all of us, in our lost, lost estate, not knowing the direction of life, not knowing where we should go to find God, not even wanting him. And he lifted us up and delivered us at great cost to himself. Christ came and suffered and died for us. That's the verse, 23. Who remembered us, marked us in our lower state, for his mercy endureth forever. Why would God do that? Why would he notice us, mark us, throwing our lives away? Not interested in him, his goodness and his blessing, not wanting heaven or eternal life. Why should he have such pity upon us that he would come and die for us and suffer for us? Of what value are we to him? Of what worth are we? What's the explanation? Why would God do it? For his mercy endureth forever. The mercy and the kindness of God, the heart of God, brought him to make a way of salvation for people like us. And hath redeemed us, verse 24, from our enemies, for his mercy endureth forever. Well, our time is up. Can I tell you about a word? And hath redeemed us, redeemed. The Hebrew word translated redeemed in the Old Testament means broken us off from. He has broken us off from slavery in, in Egypt. 
and set us free. But the redeemed word in the New Testament means something quite different. He has purchased us. He's paid for us. So you see, God could deliver Israel in ancient times from slavery in Egypt simply by a strong act. He delivered them by a series of wonderful things. He set them free. He didn't have to buy them. He was setting them free. But to set them free from sin and to set us free from sin requires more than just a strong act by God. It requires a purchase. A payment has to be made. Christ must pay the price and suffer and die in our place. So Bible redeemed has two meanings, but they join together as kind of twins. We are taken away from captivity, broken off from the world, made believers, given new hearts and new lives. And we are, it is achieved by a price being paid. Christ suffers and dies to pay the price of our sins. The redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, the psalm concludes. Verse 26, give thanks unto the God of heaven for his mercy endureth forever. Seek his mercy, friends. Seek his favor. Seek his acceptance. Come and ask him for new life. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ on Calvary. That's the great key to it all. Trust entirely in him. Don't think you've any righteousness of your own sufficient to deserve heaven. Trust in Christ entirely. Yield to him and you'll be his. He'll receive you. How do you know? How can you be sure? For his mercy, his kindness and love endureth forever. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, write these things on our hearts. O oh Lord, help us to grasp and to understand the loving kindness which is thine, the loving kindness of Christ the Saviour, and draw us and save us even this night. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen.